Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, Cody, we are fresh off the... Why are you looking at me that way? What happened? Did I do something weird? No, no, you're fine. I think I was just staring off into nothingness because I'm, I'm waiting to see where you're going to steer this ship because in this vast ocean, Ben, I'm just looking at the horizon and wondering where, where in the, the sunrise we're going to be sailing here. That's how I felt the last week without any basketball. I was just going to say we're coming off the All-Star weekend, which uh, shall not be discussed from here to eternity. And that's how I felt during the All-Star game. I actually, I will confess, I stopped watching the All-Star game years ago because, well, for obvious reasons now at this point, um, but I did watch seven minutes of the All-Star game and it made me never want to watch basketball again. Okay, I'm not going to talk about this year's All-Star game because I promised I wouldn't. But I do want to say the All-Star game holds a special purpose in my life, Ben. Like back back when I was a youngster just getting into basketball, I didn't have like ESPN and stuff. I was in the boondocks where, you know, we were getting like three channels sort of thing. So a friend of mine recorded the 2007 All-Star game. And the amount of times that I watched the 2007 All-Star, it's it's really shocking and scary. Because if you don't, when you don't have ESPN and TNT, there's shockingly little basketball to watch that was like your own mixtape the 2007 all-star game yeah it was like that and then like the jordan not jordan michael jordan's playground there was like nba super slams volume two that was my like nba upbringing well here's my question for you today this is where i'm going to steer the ship would you think the following player that i'm about to describe would be an all-star that's that's what i want to kind of pick your brain about here here's the player here's the player he's in the 98th percentile in our box plus minus that we use uh, at thinkingbasketball.net. It's available for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Uh, 98th percentile in box plus minus. He's in the 97th percentile in 538's Raptor. He's in the 95th percentile in ESPN's RPM. He's in the 95th percentile in Dunks and Threes EPM. That's... uh acronym salad soup but those are all one number metrics trying to estimate impact saying this player's you know five or six points better than the average player per 100 right up and down the board he looks like one of the best offensive players in the game he's second in the league in our passer rating averages 22 points per 75 on positive efficiency four percent ahead of the league when he's on the court his team is eight points better per 100 does that sound like an all-star to you like like an all ben you described someone that's that's probably making my mvp ballot at this point all-star game that that was that was years ago with this dude I, i'm excited to see where you're going well then this. you're a Co- cody i i have to tell you i like it you are an iconoclast you are rogue you are a deviant you are cutting against the grain because the player i just described 1500 minutes of basketball of that quality this season uh, he is not an all-star. That is James Harden for the 2023 Philadelphia 76ers. The 76ers, by the way, are 38 and 19 at the all-star break. They are in the third position in the East and they have one all-star Joel Embiid, or, um, as, as they say in England, <laughs> did you see this thing going around in, in England? They're talking about the basketball festivities with the all-star game and the, no. the poor woman had no idea how to pronounce anyone's name. <laughs> I did not. Is this floating yeah. around like Twitter? 
I yes, it is. I okay. hope it. I maybe it's not that big. I was one of the first things I saw in my two minutes foray into Twitter today. She was she was she didn't know. You know, she was like Joel Embiid and uh, Pascal Shakim. See, Akam retweeted it. Yeah. Oh, Pascal Shakim was one of them, and I think my favorite was the Milwaukee Bucks great MVP, um, Jonas Atuko. Oh, she just cut out like four <laughs> syllables. <laughs> He's missing a lot of his his uh, phonemes in the middle. Of the word, so yes, Harden. What what is going on here? He's this. He's fascinating. We have to discuss what's going on. This is now two years that he's been in Philadelphia. His style is really interesting. I want to talk about this more. But you know, All Star Game weekend, he what he wasn't there. I avoid takes on Twitter nowadays. Like I just don't send them out there because if I if you wade into those waters, people just come at you with like all kinds of vitriol, and I'm, I'm not about that energy. Ben, I'm trying to get that energy out of my life, but. James, like, I think I immediately went to the thinking basketball intelligentsia. I'm like, James Harden not being an all-star is a crime. Like, at the time, like, this is absolutely ridiculous. It makes zero sense that this man did not make the all-star team. But I think it goes back to something we talked about. I think at the time, he hadn't been playing as much as some other players. So I think he got lost in the whole, like, oh, he doesn't have enough minutes per game. He hasn't played enough total minutes this season. Not the minutes per game. I think that was always high. But he didn't play enough total minutes. And I, I weirdly think that's the reason. Um, I think maybe they even had a slump for a couple of games. Who knows? It makes no sense. James Harden is an incredible basketball player. But if that's the reason, then why are some of the players in the game, you know, why have they played fewer minutes than James Harden? That it, uh, it gets, it gets difficult to understand. The secret, Ben, the secret to, if you don't follow, like if you make illogical arguments, you don't have to follow logic ever for any other arguments, all right? So if you're already, like, over the edge with one thing, you don't have to try and connect everything else. That's that's my take about why why James Harden, um, why there's no logic to James Harden not making the team. Okay, all right. Well, here's here's a serious question. Mm-hmm. Is it because his numbers, his raw numbers are down and there's sort of a Russell Westbrook triple-double, like, the more you do, the better, the less you do, the worse thing going on? Because I have to think, Cody, that if... James Harden were, um, man, I want to come up with one of the, the 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 draft guys coming into the league having these incredible names that are so you know James Harden's such a traditional sounding name, but if he if he's a twenty twenty four draft prospect, that doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't be in the NBA if he was a twenty twenty one draft prospect and he was in his third season, uh, and Philadelphia was in third place and he had joined Embiid. It's hard for me to think that he wouldn't be an instant selection to the all-star game. So is it is it because we're sick of him, we wanted new players, or is it something to do with his counting numbers, throwing people off? Because I think what we have to get into now, and, and feel free to start driving us down this road, his style change next to Embiid has been fascinating and I think quite successful. Well, I think there's a couple of things going against James Harden here. The the minute thing, I definitely think is probably part of the equation here. The raw stats, like you said, like if we're looking at raw stats, I pulled up his basketball reference right now. Peak James Harden, like 2018, 2019, when it was just like clear out, we're surrounding you with shooters and defenders. James Harden gets the ball. He's scoring 36 points per game, 34 points per game. This season, it's down to 21 points per game. So I think people might see that and immediately be like, oh, James Harden, if he's taking like, if you take a third of his points away, that must be must be how much worse he is right now. So he's clearly not at the same level because I think they're comparing it to like raw stats for James Harden before. I think the other thing too is just, 
you know, not to wade too much into these waters. I think it's twice now I've said wading water. We're in the waters today. We're deep, deep in the ocean. But I think James Harden kind of forcing himself out of a couple situations, getting traded, not being part of some of the best uh, groupings of players the last couple of seasons when it comes to off-the-court stuff. I, I think people are holding that against him. It's kind of like this, like, all right, if you can't if you can't keep this ship in line, Ben, then you don't deserve to be on the All-Star team. So I think it's like a, a combination of those multiple factors. Hmm. Um, that may be true, but that doesn't mean it's consistent. Just, just to be fair, again, Harden's played logic. Har- yeah, <laughs> yeah, Harden's because because Harden Harden's played forty one games, fifteen hundred minutes. The the situations you talked about off the court. Um, Kyrie Irving has certainly had his share of situations off the court. He's played forty four games, sixteen hundred minutes. He's an all star. Um, I'm not sure he's been better than Harden when they've played. Was Kyrie voted in by the fans though? Oh, I think he was uh, he was because a fan he was vote. part because he was part of well the fans get part of the starter. Yeah. selection. Yeah, you were saying that's what that's what pushed him up there. Exactly. I would be interesting to see if Kyrie would have made the team if he wasn't the starter because the coaches see, would yeah. have been the ones that picked. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. But I mean, however they get there, you know, in 5 or 10 years when people are going back and and looking at all-stars all that stuff gets lost in the shuffle, how they got selected and, you know, whether the fans did it and that kind of thing. But I think it's worth diving into because Harden basically played the most extreme style I think we've ever seen. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think most people would probably say like him, Westbrook, maybe Luca or Trey are in that conversation. But I think Harden, Harden takes the cake. Yeah, I, I mean, we were looking at it before we started recording here. Some of Harden's numbers... Uh, in, in past situations, you know, he's been able to play with, in Houston, he played with Russell Westbrook, of course, in Brooklyn, he played, uh, what, about four games with Kyrie Irving and about 12 with Kevin Durant. They, did, they, didn't, they didn't get to actually play that much together, um, but he's been able to play next to a lot of players, in, including Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City, including Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City. And when you look at how he's played, the numbers he's put up, the success of his offenses as a one-man offense, we'll keep the sort of scope to the regular season here. I've talked about postseason stuff, and maybe it gets a little more nuanced, but just in the regular season, Cody, we're talking about a guy who literally like 40 points per 75, you know, more than 10 assists, 14 assists per 100 or whatever it comes out to be, creating like 20 shots per 100 in our estimates of of shot creation for teammates. No one's ever done this, an offensive load over 70, which means, you know, he's he's directly involved. He's shooting, turning it over, or setting up a guy for a shot at like 70 or 75% of the offensive possessions, which, which almost doesn't make sense because there are loose ball fouls and there's transition. Um, I don't think we've ever seen anybody take it to that degree as just the guy who's responsible for the outcome of that possession, having the ball all the time. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. 
<laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Giving a little bit of context here, you, you kind of just slipped by this one. You said that it is a box creation, creating the number of a number of shots it creates for teammates per 100 possessions. Over 20. Ben, I'm I'm in the numbers a lot looking at things. For people at home that like don't necessarily know this, you don't see that number like ever. Like I maybe can think of some Chris Paul without a star numbers that maybe crest the twenty box creation number. Maybe Westbrook wants to it like doesn't happen. It's happened it's, like it's yeah, it's like ninety nine point nine ninth percentile. It's it's only been probably done a couple times. And the thing about a couple a couple times in these instances where we're like, I don't think it's ever been done for a full season. No, I don't think so either. I'd be interested to see Harden in like the twenty seventeen or so season because he's probably pretty close. But the thing about Harden, I feel I feel like I've gone to bat for Harden a few times recently. I don't necessarily like Harden's not my favorite player of all time, but I feel like I end up defending him on here a bit. What I find really fascinating about Harden. Okay, we've like you just said, we, he's probably the most extreme case of helio ball that we've ever seen. But like we talked about during the summer when we looked at some of those Western Conference final series, when he's off the bench, when he's playing with Westbrook and, and Durant, some of his numbers there are really good, right? He's a really efficient basketball player. Okay, this, off- this you mean you mean you mean ten years ago? Yeah, I'm talking ten yeah, yeah. years ago. Yeah, when he when he's when he's the bench player, he's the supercharged, maybe the new Manu Ginobili type. You see a lot of statistical indicators that are like, okay, like 22 points per 75 plus nine relative true shooting percentage, and you're like, this guy's gonna be really special. He's young, right? But then he completely shifts gears, becomes Helio guy, and now we kind of saw flashes it in Brooklyn. Not enough time to really get it like solidified, but now with with Philadelphia, he seems to be meshing pretty well with Embiid. They seem to have a good a good uh, dynamic together and. I kind of don't know if we give James Harden enough credit for for changing his style, even though it seemed like he was one of the most inflexible Helio guys ever for a period of time. I think James Harden's career offensively is really fascinating. So I've had I've had people ask me, like, have you have you changed your mind on him because of what's happening in Philadelphia? Do you think he fits better? I mean, I think you asked me a year ago, Cody, at the trade deadline, what the basketball fit is like between Embiid and Harden. And I think I said a five or a five and a six. I think I said it was okay, not ideal. I think you were a little higher on it, right? Mm -hmm. Am I I remembering this conversation I think so. I think I was pretty excited about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what's interesting, like like this goes back to perception and making the all-star team and things like this. Here's James Harden this year with Joel Embiid, on the bench. He's averaging 29 points per 75 on plus four and a half percent true shooting, meaning it's almost five percentage points better than the league. The league right now is like 58% true shooting is league average or something. So Harden's up at 62 or whatever. Um, and go back to that box creation, that estimates of shot cre- shots created. He's over 20. He's over, so he's doing his thing. It's not what we used to see in terms of the scoring, but he's doing his thing. Um, the offensive rating for Philadelphia, however, in that Lone Star situation is 116, which is okay. It's okay, but it's not like the one-man offenses we used to see. Like, he could put that up in Houston years ago when league average offensive rating was like eight points lower than what it is now. So, okay, that's with Embiid off the court. The numbers sound good. All, all that sounds pretty good, right? You yeah. with me? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, with Embiid on the court... Care to guess how many points per 75 he's averaging? And it was 20, 29 without him? Yeah, 29 without him. League average is about 16 or so. 
Oh, this is James Hart. I'm going to guess it's still probably going to be like 22, 23-ish. It is, it is 19 points hmm. per 75 on lower efficiency, which is usually what you see with a, with a guy who self-generates, who's an on-ball. He wants the ball. He wants to dance around. That helps him get into his rhythm and score. Um, but his creation numbers are still pretty big for a guy that doesn't have the ball as much with another star out there like Embiid. And his passer rating in our estimates of passing efficiency that we have from the box score spikes to what would be second in the league. It's like nine and a half. It's an incredible number. And this jumps out to me a little bit on film as well. When you see him playing more of a, of a point guard style that I don't want to quite call pass first. I think that's not quite right. I do think there are pass first players in the league. I would describe Tyrese Halliburton's style of attacking as like looking to pass or pass first. I think going back to an archetype like a decade ago, Rajon Rondo was looking to pass a lot versus always looking to score. I think that's pass first. So Harden doesn't go quite that far, but compared to when he's the one just like dancing around like the cuttlefish that I've called him before, hypnotizing the defense, ball on a string, he's he's passing and um, running pick and roll and making a beautiful dimes and early passes. And so with all that said, the Philadelphia offense spikes with the two of them out there. And and when they're out there just in bead, it's like 115. When it's just hardened, it's 116. When they're out there together, it's 123. Not Not absolutely incredible. Not like the greatest offense of all time, but that's a big jump. And so not only do you see the offensive change in this situation, now all of a sudden they're outscoring people by 12 points per 100. Now they look like a really, really good duo together. And I think that's counterintuitive for people with his scoring and his style dropping so much compared to what we've seen for like basically a decade in, in Houston. I think, and you know, I, I was excited about this pairing when it happened, but I don't necessarily want to say that I was so excited. I didn't think that they would be quite this good together. I really didn't. And I think something that we fall into, and I definitely fall into this, and I think if I fell into it when I was making my analysis about these two, is you get so thinking about players' archetypes. You get caught up in how they're they're perceived and like you put them in a little box and you're like, oh, this is exactly how they're going to play. Because in my mind, I'm like, of course they're going to work out together. Like he's a two fantastic offensive player and Bede because multi-talented can do space the floor, can roll a little bit. But Harden, I was like, you know, he wants a rim running big man. He wants somebody that's going to get to the rim and throw down a lob, like a Clint Capella type. Like that's the kind of big man that works best with Harden in the pick and roll. But the one thing that I'm seeing more and more is Embiid loves to stop in that short mid-range area because he's man, he's got such a soft, just a buttery touch. We didn't talk about him in the in the in the touch section of our uh, in our awards, our, our fun little awards episode we had before. But Embiid's touch is incredible, and Harden is really good at getting him the ball in those sp- uh, spots, not necessarily contested. He's getting those cleaner, right? It's already impossible to contest and beat, but when you have Harden handling it, you're getting those shots even better. And Harden also has some tricks. You've pointed out Luka Doncic doing the little quick, like, when he's in a pick and roll and the, the roll man pops, right? He does the quick behind the back pass to, to defeat a blitzer hedge. James Harden does the same thing. He's able to take advantage of the defense that way. So I think he just he just opens up the game and makes the sh- the tough shots that Embiid makes, makes them easier for him, for a guy oh, that's already good at him. Right. Okay. So th- this is what's happening. This is fascinating. Usually when you look at combinations of players, when they play with or without another star, you know, um, when they're the lone star on the court versus playing with 
you know, if you're in Golden State, you've got Curry, and then you add Durant, and then you add Clay Thompson, and et cetera, et cetera. Usually what happens is your numbers go down like we just saw with Harden. Mm -hmm. Embiid, who himself is a sort of monster isolation scorer, a self-creator, a a somewhat ball-dominant player, or post-dominant, however you want to think of it. Embiid plays on the perimeter, and he... They have that beautiful offense in Philadelphia where they just clear out the entire side and give it to Embiid like it's 1988 and they're waiting for illegal defense to be called. Um, he he scores a ton. We know this. We know Joel Embiid is a scoring monster. Cody, his scoring numbers go up next to Harden, which is the kind of thing you would see with like Amari Stoudemire next to Steve Nash or something like that, where you have a play finisher who can benefit based on the playmaking of another primary ball-dominant creator. And I think that's what's happening. You talked about that short roll counter where Embiid doesn't have to kamikaze roll himself all the way to the basket. He doesn't have to hang out in the dunker spot necessarily. He can play the pick and roll. He can get downhill and finish into space really well. Or he can stop short, take that shot that you talked about. So Embiid's numbers with Harden this season... Uh, excuse me, this is the last two years since the trade. Over 1,600 minutes played. He's averaging 36 points per 75 on plus 8% true shooting. And as I said, this combination is plus 12 uh, together when it's just hard and they're minus two. When it's just Embiid, they're plus six, consistent with kind of where they were before when they didn't have a, a second star like Harden. But it, it's it's a pairing that I think... Uh, has not completely shifted the earth under the Eastern Conference, but it's worked out really well, and to some degree in a quiet way because Harden's scoring numbers are down, but his playmaking has been so effective. I think you left out, to me, the most fascinating part of that. When it beats on the court with Harden, his scoring goes up a couple points per 75, but his efficiency goes up like four percentage points. He's more efficient, right? So he's scoring more at higher volume. You don't see, like, you never see that. This is one of those, like, little pet things that I like diving in and seeing the interaction between stars. You never see when the two stars are together that one of them scoring and uh, efficiency go up. So I, I have to ask Ben, because this is, this is the question I always think about when it comes to team building stuff. What sort of statistical indicators do you actually want to see from two stars that are together? Like, if, if you have a lone star... Do you want to see them scoring more and creating more, but their efficiency dropping? If they're sharing the court with another star, would you like to see scoring and creation drop, but efficiency spike? Like, what combination of these indicators are you looking for? I think this is, I think this is actually an easy one for me. Okay. I am primarily focused on how the team performs. That's what I'm looking at. So, all, yes, all of these with and without you numbers and what happens when Jordan Poole goes to the bench and what happens when Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker are together. And they, they're, they're, they're all great. They're all instructive. They can all teach us about things. They can remind us of context. They can remind us of the importance of contextualizing stats. And they can remind us how more is not always better. Less is not always worse, as we just talked about with Harden. But Cody, the very first thing that I look at is how the team performs. And that that has fascinated me for years. I think it's one of the things that sort of makes floor raisers so interesting is you'll often see, my goodness, this, this guy's team and their offensive performance is great with him. 
So adding other stars isn't necessarily just going to put like two and two equals five or two and two equals four. It's more like that guy's already at four and four and three doesn't equal seven. Four and three equals five. You still get to five because it's hard to keep going once you're already really good. So some of these guys are just one man offenses and I don't really care that much about your actual scoring numbers, your actual assist numbers, sometimes your efficiency numbers, those are all important. They all matter to some degree. But the first place I always start is like, what's going on with the team? How good is the team? And what is the change? And in fact, if you go back and look at some of Harden, we'll stick with Harden. If you go back and look at some of his teams, one of the things I've talked about over the years that I think has confused people is when you're that great as a floor raiser, it's hard to just automatically convey that extreme level of value when other players come on board. And Harden's played with Chris Paul. He played with, um, let's say, late stage Russell Westbrook for a year in 2020. And if you look at that, the team was already really good without any of those players just by just by basically playing Harden ball. And the thing that's really interesting, you talk about the NBA math. I think NBA math, when you try and do the team building thing, it's just, it's such an interesting facet of NBA mathematics. Like you said, sometimes there's some players that like, maybe in a in a vacuum, they're like a plus one, but next to these other guys, it might be a plus 1.5 or plus two. They're adding like that sort of value. But the one constant, Ben, like the, I guess there's a couple constants, but one constant is you have four teammates out there with you, right? There's always going to be five players on the court with you. So it's all about trying to, how can you fit the amount of talent that's going to fit together, right? How can you squeeze out the most value with the five players that you have? You can't have six players out there, right? And so if you have a player like James Harden where it's like, all right, so maybe in these rocket seasons, it looks really good when he's out there without a star. But then when you see him in these other seasons, it's like, all right, but if we slot in another superstar, what are those offensive numbers going to look like? To me, that that screams it. And we're going back to the question you get, are you kind of rethinking uh, Harden's portability, his ability to fit in? This kind of makes me rethink it personally what are you thinking about him uh i think getting new data like this always makes me go back and try to incorporate that and try to think about how am i weighing that against other information because a lot of times i think what people do to fall into a trap i probably did this when i was younger until i really took note of it I think what we do is we get one really salient, important piece of information. Like this player choked in the clutch or something. LeBron passed. He, he didn't want it bad enough. LeBron choked against Miami. And then they just never update based on that one. I've, I've seen this a lot with Steph Curry as well in 2016. And, and what ended up happening at the end of the season in 2016, losing the 3-1 lead. I mean, if they win that series in five and it's 4-1... No, it completely changes the perception of how people think about that season and that team and that style and et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes you have people just still like, oh, I know what I saw in 2016. So for me, it's always important to go back and update. But the other thing is all the time when you do that, you're weighing pieces of information and sometimes they're competing pieces of information and sometimes they're reinforcing. So I, I want to now... Our favorite thing to do on this show is is read numbers. I'll, I'll try to make this as exciting as possible. But so, but I want to go back and look at some of the things that had been in my head when James Harden and and some of these incredible um, sort of circumstances he's been in with his team. Let's go back to Westbrook and Durant. This blows my mind. 
This absolutely blows my mind. In 2011 and 2012, when Harden started to, it, as you said, um, sort of turn into that, like, is this evolutionary monogenobly? What's going on? Now, is that because, are we doing a thing where we're doing the pattern recognition as humans and we're like, I see a southpaw, so I have to compare a left-handed, a creative left-handed player with another creative left-handed player? I don't know. Either way, 2011, 2012, this is nuts. Cody, this is nuts. This is nuts, man. He plays, in those two seasons, he plays over a thousand minutes without Westbrook or Durant, meaning he's the lone star out there. They're on the bench. The, the dude, well, let me just say when he plays with them, okay, averages 12 points per 75 on plus 6%. Because that's what happens when you share the court with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, who eat up all the oxygen in the room. There aren't many touches left. There aren't many shots left. And Harden, even back then, wasn't running around screens and shooting nine threes from the corner and things like that. He's, he's still effectively a point guard. Okay, 12 points per 75. His offensive load was 20. That is below league average. Um, And when they all were out there together, they played over 2000 minutes together in those two seasons. When they were all out there together, Oklahoma City was plus seven. They outscored opponents by seven points per 100. Okay. Okay. Now take Durant and Westbrook and stick them on the bench and make it James Harden's Oklahoma City Thunder. Cody, what did they outscore opponents by? Honestly, I'm waiting for you. Finish your story, Ben. Finish this. This is you. Plus seven. Plus seven. The exact same. Now, this is against bench units, right? So you have to scale that in your mind. You're asking me about how I weigh these pieces of information. Well, at the time, if you knew that they were the same with Westbrook and Durant or without them when Harden's on the court, it would make sense if you're the Houston Rockets to be like, okay, we can we can build something here. Because what do the other numbers look like? Cody, the dude's offensive load goes all the way up to 53. He averages 33 points, 33 points per 75. He goes from a 12-point scorer to a 33-point scorer. He's not quite the passer he would become. But essentially, if I look at that, if I'm like 33 points per 75 – plus 12% relative efficiency against bench units. I know if I put you in the starting lineup, unless I see a specific flaw in your game, it's your numbers are going to scale back, but I would expect like 27 plus seven or something like that. In fact, I I looked it up right before the show. Uh, I wrote down in my notes, I was like 20, is he going to be 27 plus seven in the next season in Houston? I think he was 26 plus seven, Hmm. right? So we've talked about this before. These kinds of lineup indicators often predict what you do in a full season sample as long as you do some mental curving when necessary. Russell Westbrook played a ton of time without Kevin Durant. So when Kevin Durant misses a season or when Kevin Durant goes to Oklahoma City, you know what's coming. You know the triple-double and the offensive load of 70 is coming. But Cody, this just blows my brains. that <laughs> This dude was this... like. I need a minute. I need a minute to recover. It's like the same outcome. That is the definition of a floor raiser, my friends. Like adding Russell Westbrook and and Kevin Durant didn't change the outcome. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is this is my whole point with Harden. I kind of think we need to rethink the way that we've been giving him credit. And this goes back to one of the terms I love throwing around, Ben, shiftability. He's able to. This is this is more than I've probably ever seen, honestly, diving into these numbers, being able to shift up and down between roles. It's like, oh, there's a couple other super load guys on the court with me. I'll shift down a little bit. I'll score but there's a little no bit shift, less. There's no shifting here. There's but no there's, shifting. This, there this there is, is shifting. The, now there is in Philadelphia. In no, Oklahoma but, uh, City, I'm, I'm saying if we go back in time in Oklahoma City, this is a classic case of him not being able to provide any more value. He, he just looks like if you didn't look closely, you wouldn't know what was going on, which I think happened for a lot of fans at that point in time. 12 points per 75, that's below league average, Cody. He's just—he's flotsam out there. That's my point. Is he can—he can exist on the court with these guys and still have a good team. But when they go to the bench, he can ratchet it up. He can play a couple levels higher and kind of take some of that primacy, a lot more of that primacy, you know. And I, I don't know. Are there? I go through these players. I'm always trying to find guys that are able to do this, right? Guys that are able to, you know, when you have teammates on the court, you're like, okay, I'm going to scale it back a little bit. I'm going to make sure that we all are going to be playing like a team. I don't have to dominate everything. But when you're on the bench. I can really ratchet it up, right? Is there anyone else that comes to mind that you've looked at that can that has come even close to what Harden's done here? Yeah, yeah, there are a few, and and you know, there's peculiarities of just getting, as you like to say, lost in the sauce. Kevin Martin in Oklahoma City, um, I think when when he's the only guy out there, it goes from like a load of 25 to 50 or 55 or something. So you occasionally see these things where there's like a player lurking in the shadows. But then, of course, the effectiveness. Like Kevin Martin carrying that much offense is not necessarily effective. He's just doing more Reggie Jackson coming to life when Westbrook goes away. Uh, He's just doing more. It doesn't mean it's effective. Harden was really effective at a young age. So if we keep going and we look, if we jump to Houston, and there isn't the same level of stars next to Houston, and Houston hardens the star, but if you look at like the other higher load-ish players that he plays next to, uh, let's talk about 2013, 2014. Jeremy Lin, remember him, and uh, and Dwight Howard, remember him. Those two guys. When they're on the court, Houston is plus eight. When they're off the court, meaning when they're on the court with Harden, Houston's plus eight. When they're off the court, they're plus five and a half. So it's a very similar thing where you just like Harden by himself with the same caveats about doing much more and his offensive load goes way up and things like that. And and this is consistent throughout his career. And and we can, you know, I don't want to get stuck in semantics about what you mean by shiftability because to me, there's a huge difference between when he's younger playing next to Westbrook and Durant and basically turning into driftwood and not really being a key factor, 
but at the same time being able to, if he were the first guy, carry a ton himself, which is what ended up happening in Houston, and what we're seeing now in Philadelphia, now granted it's not two stars, it's one star, but even Tyrese Maxey's out there a lot, you know, he he gets some primacy, and it's just clearly, to me, the improvement, the biggest difference between Harden and Oklahoma City and Harden today is the passing. The passing is massively improved. He's been one of the best passers in the league, but but now he's adding so much value with this passing. And I'll and I'll add one more thing. I think the thing that I'm reevaluating the most about Harden, it's subtle, but it's meaningful to me. How much did his decision to score suppress some of his passing? We know he's not the greatest passer in the history of Earth, and we know he has some right-to-left weaknesses. But if he were to actually play like this and be a little bit more pass-first, if he were to actually play like this and average, say, like, 25 points instead of 35 how much would we focus on the value the passing brought in other words let's say the difference between Harden mega scoring and Harden mega passing was like two percent better for the mega scoring and he made the right call by trying to call his own number more i'm saying how would our perception change if he actually made the wrong call was a little more passive as a scorer and just leaned into the passing would the offenses have been 99 percent as good, and we'd be out here talking about like you, you know Harden. He's this generation's Magic Johnson. You know, like he just he can score when he needs to, but he's an amazing passer. This is really interesting because I think there is actually a through line to a player that's very similar to that where we've had conversations like this, who also was coached by the same person. Because we see the Rockets with James Harden. I, I think Dan Tony was all about like, look, I'm going to learn from my mistakes with the seven seconds or like Suns, where I have gone on record and said that Steve Nash probably should have shot more. One of the greatest shooters of all time, Steve Nash should have been shooting more instead of kind of taking a backseat, being more of a a classic point guard and and passing. And I think he took it to the other extreme with Harden. It's like, look, you need to be shooting a lot. You need to be creating in this way. And I think Harden just kind of ran with that. So I I don't know. Do you see these kinds of numbers with with Steve Nash? Do you see them as kind of being like opposite ends of the spectrum where like you would wish to take both of those players and if we can meet in the middle, that's where we want to see with a mega creator. Maybe. I mean, you know my hot take is that I think Nash passing that much actually was better in that situation. Um, I talked about that a little bit with Mike D'Antoni. I mean, you know, who, who knows? We'll never actually know. But it, it's let, – let me, let me throw out a couple more numbers here. He goes and plays with Chris Paul, of course, in Houston 2018-2019 – that's when his Lone Star numbers are ridiculous. Cody, an offensive load of 73, <laughs> averaging in these two years without Chris Paul, averaging 37 points per 75, 37. You heard that right. Don't don't adjust your phone or car radio or however you consume your podcast. Um, but again, the important thing that I care about, Houston's offense plus seven without Chris Paul. Offensive rating 117, which back in back, I know it's hard to think all those years ago before, you know, before the pandemic, 2019. Yes, 117 was an incredibly great offensive rating back then. Then Chris Paul comes on the court, goes from plus seven to plus 10. So you're like squeezing out a little extra value, which is consistent when you're already that good. Um, Offensive rating goes from 117 to 119. So this is really the first time in. Harden's career, I think, where you don't have the floor raising anymore. He's not, maybe not capable of providing the same floor raising, but 
seems to be that he's really leaning into the fit or the synergy with the other star through the playmaking and everything we're talking about with Embiid. And um, not only is that fascinating now to think about, but it is fascinating to think about in the last five to seven years how he might have been able to lean into that more and how that would have influenced fit with other players. I think the fit aspect of it, to me, is is a key part of this. Because you talk about, I mean, we're, we're comparing and contrasting Chris Paul and Joel Embiid here. The or, fit or, between, or Westbrook, right? Yeah, or Westbrook, yeah. right? And so Harden being with Chris Paul, being with Westbrook, not necessarily the exact kind. Let's, that's more like a, an oil and water mixture when they're on the court. Like both of them, all three of them just want to have the ball and create. And they can do sort of this this floor raising thing. Whereas Embiid can kind of go more into the, the hybrid model, right? Where he can coexist next to these other guys. So I think that's the other part of this conversation is when you look at these numbers, you also have to contextualize them, right? Like if you look at somebody like Kevin Durant. All right. His teammate is probably going to look better with the multi uh, star numbers together because Kevin Durant's just so good at mixing with other players. Same with Stephen Curry. Same with these other guys that when you put him next to other players, they just like the math is is greater than the sum of the parts because they have a skill set that just lets them mesh so much. And I think that's the aspect of James Harden that's still like it's not clear. It's not clear how additive he is next to other stars like that, but he can at least shift around in that role. Yeah, I'm 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 fascinated just by this whole idea of how we how we change our mind or how we process information as new information comes in. Um, one really quirky stat, by the way, is that to to your point of what you just said, Embiid as a finisher, as a hybrid, playing off Harden, forty one percent from downtown in the last two years when Harden's on the court. That's up from thirty four percent when Harden goes to the bench, but Harden who really likes the step back, right? He really likes to generate his own threes. He's shooting 41% in Philadelphia in limited minutes, only about 700 minutes with Embiid off the court. Um, But then when Embiid's on the court, it's 35%. He's taking way fewer threes. So it's like, this is a very interesting kind of synergy or fit to think about here. But I I mean, I'm fascinated by this. The, The other guy this year... And I'm sure we could come up with a few more before we end the episode. But the other guy this year that I think you and I have have mentioned a couple times as sort of trying to figure out what to make of this season and how we think about his past seasons. I've had a number of questions about him is Rudy Gobert, your favorite player in the world to talk about, right? Like what what does it mean to take what we're seeing in Minnesota is it a super weird situation where they're trying to have Minnesota um, succeed with Carl Anthony Towns and Gobert and those players just don't fit together? Is that the learning? Is that what we're taking away? Is the is it something else? Do we go back and look at the Utah situation and say, well, maybe in Utah everything was built around him perfectly? Like you just have a bunch of mediocre guards funnel action into the paint and that helps you a ton in the regular season, but you get stuck. Like, like, how do you reconcile these new data points as they come in with someone like Gobert? I love the transition between James Harden and Rudy Gobert. Because, Ben, I, I think these two, stick with me here, I think they're kind of the same. I think their impact is kind of the same, right? Harden's best offense is when Harden is creating. He's a Harden ball, helio ball. Gobert seems to excel in like a 
it, there's no better way to say it. Like a Helio defensive system, where like he is the defensive system, right? And maybe when you're trying to incorporate multiple different kinds of schemes, that's where Rudy Gobert starts to lose some of his value. But if it's like, hey, we're going to play a drop, right? He can come out. I'm not saying he's he's incapable of hedging or or whatever else. He's a little bit more mobile in space than people give him credit. But when they are running like a drop or funneling everything to Gobert, that's when he shines. But when he's next to other bigs, you know, Carl Anthony Towns has been, has been out for the majority of the season at this point. But I don't think the Nas Reed minutes with Rudy Gobert have looked tremendous defensively, right? And so I think that's kind of the an interesting inflexibility with Gobert, right? Is he can he can buoy your defense, but when you're trying to try different defensive styles, I don't necessarily know if that's the guy you want to go to. Yeah, he's only played 400 minutes this season with Carl Anthony Towns. Minnesota's been outscored by one point per 100 in those minutes. And then he's played 1,100 minutes without Towns. And Minnesota's been outscored by one point per 100 in those minutes. So, um, yeah, I, I get I get what you're going for there. I don't, I don't really... I don't know if it's an exact kind of like one-to-one mirror thing, but but it is interesting to think about, especially when we talk about fit, when we talk about team building, people have heard me use team uh, terms like portability or scaling, meaning how, how well does your game travel next to better and better talent? How much do you retain value? How much can you impact the game if you're a ball-dominant player and there's only one ball-dominant player out there? And I think what's interesting about this era, and specifically with Gobert, is defensive portability, defensive sort of, okay, I'm on a good defensive team, therefore, is it likely that they have a rim protector? And if I'm a classic rim protector myself and I, I don't have mobility, I can't switch, I can't play other coverages, do I then become somewhat uh, diminished? Are there diminishing returns playing next to one of those players? And all these drop bigs, Rudy Gobert, Brooke Lopez, um, sorry, Cody, uh, Rob Williams, I, I think about that with all of them, especially compared to the sort of more like Jaron Jackson, Evan Mobley, Anthony Davis when he's healthy, just like switch and Swiss army knife kind of defenders. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but the value of having a four that can play next to the five while also able to shift over to the five and play the defense, those seem to be the skeleton key for unlocking these these best defenses. Because if you look at the best defensive teams in the NBA, I haven't looked at them in a couple days, right? But I'm pretty sure the top is like some combination of Cleveland, Milwaukee, Memphis, all teams that have, you know, Jaron Jackson can play the four or the five. Giannis play the four or the five. Mobley play the four or the five. They're flexible enough that they can do those coverages. And I think back the first team and the first player that I also think about when we, if we're going to roll out this defensive portability, I'm going to take you back. Let's go on a journey. Back. Let's go back in my time machine. 20 or so, about 20-ish years ago, 2004, Detroit Pistons, right? This is a team that ends up winning the championship that year. But for the first two-thirds of the season, they're good. They're not a great team. They make a trade for Rasheed Wallace. For the rest of the season, we're talking like all-time defense. And the key, it's not necessarily that Rasheed Wallace himself is worth like 10 points on defense. It's that Ben Wallace, the defensive anchor for that Pistons team, is so flexible, so flexible as a big man that Rasheed comes in and he's like, oh, you're going to rim protect here? Great. I'm going to go over and play this role. Oh, you're going to hedge? I'm going to go over and, and help in the paint to help this. Oh, Sheed, you're going to take Shaq this possession? I'll switch over here and play Carl Malone on this possession, right? That flexibility is exactly the skeleton key that unlocked that 2004 Pistons team. 
But I think it was easier back then. I think back then you could have double bigs. You could have uh, the Spurs were trying three bigs at one point with, you know, Craig Popovich is like, okay, let's play Duncan and Robinson and Will Perdue. They're three seven footers. And the reason he was doing that was he was trying to cram more defense on the court to crowd up the paint, get more length, get more shot blocking, get more rebounding because he wasn't paying a penalty anywhere else. He wasn't losing anything on offense and he wasn't getting burned on the perimeter. In today's game, over the years, big men have become vulnerable out on the perimeter because you can stretch and isolate and hunt them. The entire concept of value for rebounding and traffic and size has been mitigated severely. We did an entire episode uh, about rebounding uh, a year or two ago. I can't keep track at, at this point. But basically, because of the space of the game, you don't have you don't have the same contested rebounds that you used to have. And so you can't really do that anymore. There's now a price to pay. And this is a great segue for the thing I'm really thinking about with Gobert, Cody. I don't know how you feel, but I'm thinking more about his offense and how as time goes on, he can't punish people on offense and he may actually be um, a... Uh, a limited fit on offense, if that makes sense. So in Utah, the idea was, well, he doesn't take anything off the table. He doesn't try to eat up possessions that he shouldn't. He's a great offensive rebounder, rim runner, vertical gravity, uh, mismatch. If you switch on the pick and roll, those things are all true. It's one of the reasons why I think Mike Conley, by the way, really helps Gobert in Minnesota after the trade deadline. We'll, we'll see how that pans out. But the thing, the thing now is like, if you switch, if you go small, like the, the league is trying to do, and be more switchable, more versatile, and Gobert can't punish that, then you're giving something away because he's also not a great spacer. He's also not a great three-point shooter. He's also not a playmaker. He's not going to be a point guard on the court. So you're, you're giving up offensive value. You're allowing teams to play more offensive-centric lineups without charging attacks on defense. And interestingly enough, it's very limited minutes, but it's a pretty extreme number. If you look at Towns and Gobert this season, when they played together, for about 400 minutes on the court versus off the court. Um, Towns with Gobert, Cody, 17 points minus 5% true shooting. 17 points per 75 minus 5% true shooting. When Gobert went to the bench... It was like back to the old towns. It was 29 points per 75 plus 14% true shooting. So you get this issue of fit potentially on both ends of the court in today's game. Because if you don't have the ball skills, the shooting, the playmaking, the passing, if you, if you don't have this stuff and you can't, um, well, let me just, let me say it this way. When you don't have that stuff, maybe it's hard to fit next to another player who also doesn't have that stuff. Maybe you can only have one of those on offense as well. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That's so weird. I feel like I feel like the conversation because you know I was I was on board with the Gobert train. I thought that uh, 
you know, I thought that Towns was going to be able to fit next to him. He needs a big man that can play some defense. He can space it out. Clear, I mean, limited minutes. We'll see what happens. But yeah, the experiment is not working at all. My question, though, because I'm I'm really interested in this, because you you like coming up with, uh, you know, you come up with your valuations about different players. How good are they on offense, on defense? Gobert, like you just laid out. I don't know if I like doing that, by the way. It just, <laughs> it just happens. Yeah, keep, keep going. So I should say you feel obligated by the people to do this. Therefore, you do it because you're a, you're a kind gentleman, a scholar and a gentleman. Ben. Um, now you've gone too far. All right. What's your question? <laughs> so like you said, Rudy Gobert, high, high efficiency finisher, not this season, but in past seasons, really high efficiency, scoring in like the teens per 75 or something like that. Not a great passer, can't stretch the floor. But in the playoffs, you can kind of see that being schemed again. You can see that being used against him. So how do you like... How do you try and boil that into an evaluation to be like, all right, this guy's offense, Rudy Gobert's offense seems like it's valuable in the regular season. This is the kind of guy that you're going to be able to feast on. You're going to get some value out of it. But in the playoffs, it's going to be even less value because there is value in being good in the regular season. There really is. Not saying he's not good in the playoffs. But how do you like take those two variables and come up with something with them? You mean when there's a difference between regular season and postseason? Yeah, like a stark difference. Yeah, I mean, for me, I focus on the... I'm trying to figure out what it means in the postseason, essentially, because that's where most of the winning is differentiated. Like, getting a number one seed doesn't do you any good if you play like a 30-win team when you get in the playoffs. And similarly, being a six seed hurts you a little bit because you have to play tougher competition, you have a tougher path. But if you're a six seed, and all of a sudden, a week before the playoffs, you get back from injury... Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson all in their prime. It doesn't matter what seed you are or who you play or if you have home court. So I'm definitely looking at it from the lens of the playoffs. And what I think is so interesting is it feels like the last four, five, six, seven seasons, the league is in such a rapid rate of change, using so much information, so many tools, coaching staffs. What is it? 30 or 40 guys behind the bench on a coaching staff. Now, um, they're going to need... I don't know how they're going to travel in the future. They're going to need multiple planes just for the coaching staff. Look, the point is, you come out of a postseason run, and the league learns and adapts really quickly. And it's a copycat league. And even this year, the number of teams running similarly complex offensive and defensive schemes. As an example, scram switching. The idea of, you have a mismatch in the post, and I need to come over and I need to kick that guy out so he can go back and guard a smaller player. I'll protect him. I'm a big man. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of Embiid. I'll switch him out. Um, that used to kind of be reserved for the smartest players or the most cutting edge teams. That stuff's almost like standard for most of the league now. And so as you build up this vocabulary coming out of the playoffs, the regular season bar seems to go up. This, this feels like a video I should probably make at some point about the arms race and how when you hear people say like De- defenses today are worse than ever. It's like if you took if you took a defense and that system from the year 2000 with like two traditional bigs that couldn't move, you have no vocabulary for how to handle these complex three-man actions on the perimeter with five 38% three-point shooters. It, Cody, it would be 80 to 35 at <laughs> halftime just from the knowledge gain. Right, Even if you did it eight years ago, it would be like 70 to 35 at halftime. But the league catches up. And all of this is to say, I think one of the things I'm thinking about with Gobert 
is as you get these playoff tactics rolling over from one season to the next, does that actually make him less effective in the regular season? Do you actually lose some of that regular season value? It's like, oh, like you just said, like, oh, a couple years ago, maybe you look at his numbers and you're like, objectively, this is a positive offensive player, even if he's a, a third or fourth or fifth option when he's out there on the court. But he does these things well. Now when I watch the games, we'll, we'll see what happens with Conley, right? But I feel like there's more of the stuff happening every day in the regular season that used to happen in the postseason only for the best teams. Now, what your point about going back in time and transporting defenses, this is why I'm, I'm trying to get out of the time machine game, Ben. It's it's too tough to try and imagine how, how all of this would work. It's, it's impossible when you start thinking about it. You can't it. time travel. You, can't, you can go forward, maybe, but you can't go backwards. Wow, we're turning this into a philosophy and physics of time. We're going to be here another couple hours, Ben. Strictly physics. Stri- strictly physics. Um, I forgot who. Someone... Uh, I don't remember his name, but he said there's a very small difference between physics and philosophy. But we're we're way off track here. The the point, the question, the steer the ship. You're you're lost in the water. Bring us back. We're spinning in in Charybdis right now. We got to get out of that at the moment. Steer us away from from Scylla now. But here's my here's something I want to say about Gobert. I want to see if you're going to agree with it. Based on everything we're saying, it sounds like we're pretty low on Gobert at the moment. I also think watching the Timberwolves that Gobert seems slower. Like the contests that I've seen in the past aren't quite happening, right? He's not getting up to block some of those shots. There are times where I think he's settling back and waiting for for a pass instead of like going up to trying to contest or block it. I think there are some physical reasons he's not quite as good. I'm not going back and saying Gobert didn't deserve to be defensive player of the year, wasn't a great defensive player. Is that are, are you on the same page here? Do you still think Gobert is a is a generational rim protecting big on defense yeah I, I 100% agree with everything you just said okay and I that it goes back to your question uh about reevaluating players and things like that when you get data or at least for me part of my process when I get data that is that competing kind of data like what we're seeing this season with Gobert in Minnesota compared to some of the incredible things we've seen in Utah Sometimes you go, okay, I have no reason to believe that this is a different player. So the context is potentially changing the outcomes that I'm seeing, the the data that's coming in that's competing with what I used to think. And now I need to think about that more. I need to understand how to balance that. I think what a lot of fans in the culture do, or if you're if you're in the Twitterverse and you like to fire off the, the nasty tweets, I think what they like to do is they like to pick one extreme or the other and only focus on one piece of data. And what I'm trying to do is figure out how to balance these things because there's always going to be competing data, right? Michael Jordan will have a bad series. LeBron James will fall apart in the 2011 finals or whatever. But the big question here is, do I have a reason to believe it's the same player or did something change? If that something changed, does it explain everything? Is it reasonable to think it explained everything or does it explain part of it? I think with Gobert, right at the beginning of the year, I think I texted you right at the beginning of the year. I was like, does he look slower to you? Is he not moving quite as well? I mean, he's a giant human being. I think he's been more mobile than we thought. So I completely agree. Uh, I think that's the case here. Sometimes a player's injured, just flat out injured. And you have to you have to think about how to contextualize that information. You might even want to just completely set it to the side. And then sometimes nothing has changed with the player. So a lot of what we we have talked about with guys in the past, it's like you just get a new teammate. You're the lone star in your situation, and then all of a sudden you get a new teammate. Um, 
maybe Miami 2010 to 2011. You know, I know LeBron gained a little weight. Wade was a little bit older, but that was a pretty similar situation between 2010 Cleveland and 2011 Miami. And I, and I've heard a lot of people sort of wonder, you know, why I've said things about the performance of the, you know, the Cavs, Cavs didn't make the finals and then the heat ended up winning two championships. And I do obviously think the heat teams were better than the Cavs teams, but Cody at the time, one of the craziest learnings for me, just talk about competing pieces of information is how the Cavs were better with LeBron James than the Heat were with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. And that was like an incredibly crazy thing to find out at the time. I think if you look at the stats we were talking about earlier, when he's like the only star up on the court, I think Cleveland was like plus 15 per 100 without Mo Williams. So the Zydrunas Zilgowskis... LeBron James and a bunch of three-point shooters around him. Your Delante West, Booby Gibson, et cetera, et cetera. At least in the regular season, in those two MVP years, we're like plus 15. And then he goes to Miami and they never have that same number when he's the lone star on the court. That that blew my mind at the time. And, and it so much of long-term evaluation to me is about going back and trying to fit those pieces together and reconcile competing information like that. So... You know, what What do you do about that? Because you don't look at those numbers. I wouldn't sit here and be like, I would rather have LeBron's Cavs team pre-2010 than the Heat team, right? Like, the Heat team was, was obviously, like, I would take that, the the starting five versus the Cavs starting five easily, like 10 times out of 10. So how do you know when, like, the number that you're looking at, kind of like looking at Gobert in the regular season, looking at the, the Heat versus the Cavs in the regular season, when do you know that you need to start adjusting what you initially think about something? When when do you know? Um, yes, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean it's the same thing with Gobert. Like you you see him dominating in the regular season on de- defense, then maybe not so much in the playoffs. Like at what point do you sort of look at this and be like, maybe this is a little bit of a mirage, and we need to get a little bit more data? Yeah, I mean I think that's where sample size comes in, right? Like one time, one time I'll put a little note up on the side, and I'll be like, keep this keep this in mind if you ever see it again. Right. Like you've you've tasted this and it's given you food poisoning. It could have been something else, but just make a note of what you ate that day. When it happens again, then I think I try to start to contextualize it, say maybe the sample's still too small. Maybe it's just one thing um, or one circumstance. If you play for the same coach with the same teammates, maybe it's hard to learn stuff. When I start seeing it more and the samples get bigger, then now I'm continuing to take a step back again and weigh it against the entire body of work. Um, that that's I think that's the most generic answer I can provide for at least how I think about it. We're starting to run. I think we're past the the hour mark, Ben. We could talk about. We've this been talking for one hour about basketball. Yeah, again, continually. But I I still there's another player that I want to bring up, and I'm like, should we save this conversation for later? Do you want me just throw it out there and then we have to get out of here? Who are you going to bring up? I I think talking about Gobert. I think Trey Young is another player that this season oh is boy. fascinating. Oh man. Yeah, I uh I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with Trey Young right now. Although I think I've mentioned this before, I don't think I was quite as high on Trey Young as other people because of because of the defense. Oh, you were very high on Trey Young. I was. Yeah. Well, 
I think you've got two things with Trey Young conceptually heading into this season for me, or even heading into last year's playoffs for me that kept me from having him in like my top 15 players. I, last year when I did my top 10 um, that, I, that I never finished and published and made a video, which may, maybe at some point I should do something with that work because I spent three months on it. I had 17 players that I was looking at. Drove me nuts because I had to research more and more players. Then you get in the weeds, as you like to say, get lost in the sauce. I'm down a rabbit hole. I'm researching like 30 different defensive concepts from the early 2000s to contextualize Draymond Green's 2023 to 2015 to 2023 postseason defensive numbers. I didn't know who to put 10th. So I looked at eight players. Trey Young was not one of those eight players. So that's 17 guys right there, and he's at least on the outside looking in. The reason for that is heavily because if you're that leaky defensively, I do think you are giving back a lot of value that is hard for us to just process when we're watching the game play to play or highlight to highlight or great pass to great pass. And then the second thing, it goes back to a little bit of what we talked about with Harden, and I think we're seeing it this year with Murray, um, if you are that ball dominant, I, I know there are people who, who are frustrated by this, but there's, there's only one ball. There's only one ball. So if young alone can take you to a certain height, that's great. That's the part that I'm a big champion of. That's the reason why if you look at my all-time top offensive players ever, it's not filled anymore with superstar scorers, right? It's been replaced by guys who can create offense for other people. That's super powerful. But it's not as powerful when you put it next to, we just talked about Harden with Chris Paul and Harden with Russell Westbrook and um, you know LeBron James with Dwayne Wade. Although those guys were, those guys were pretty good, I think, because they have some skills in their own right that, that go beyond just um, you know pick and roll and ball dominant play. But those are the two big concerns to me for Young. And so I was never... I was never quite as high, um, but at the same time, like I do think, I do think it's a little disappointing what we've seen, not just in the playoffs last year, but in Atlanta. But I, I don't know. I'll let you have the final word on this, so we can we can get out of here. I, the th- the thing about Trey Young is it's not one of those things where again I'm resetting everything I know about him because you look at past seasons, 2021 when he's on the court, their relative offensive rating they're about seven and a half points better than league average last Great. year about six and a half points better on offense than league average. Those are two really good numbers. This season is just below two, right? So it's dropped off a bit right after we see the really disappointing showing against Miami. So it's almost like so far like that Miami series broke him. Like it's really strange to see this drop off. And I can't, I honestly can't figure it out. Like if you dive into some of his, his shot selection numbers, like this is his second lowest rim frequency season, right? His, His percentage of shots at the rim is the second lowest in his career. It looks like you want to say something. Yes, I want to jump in because uh, I think this goes back to what you were asking me and for the 12 people still listening here at <laughs> one hour and four minutes. Um, it, this, I think this is really important. One thing I've learned from not only looking obsessively at these kinds of things for a long time, but just like thinking about all the things we're talking about today and reevaluating and getting new information. Cody, I've learned that it's not that crazy to have a season that cuts in the other direction or is an outlier or is a bad season. And you asked me earlier, when do I know? Well, I would make a note of this 
And then I would see what happens next year or in two years or if it happens again. But I think the trap is to overreact to the one season and try to rewrite the entire story. And, you know, you're saying, like, I'm panicking. I don't know what to do. Did the Heat series break him? For me, at least, in my experience, I would say that's premature. Um, Just as a really, really salient example off the top of my head. Well, I'll give you two with all-time level players. Kevin Garnett's 2005 after his 2003 and 2004 season where he won MVP and almost beat Tim Duncan, peaked Tim Duncan for MVP and put up, I think to this day, still the two biggest on-off, or at least 2003, the biggest on-off differential in NBA history. Like when he went to the bench, the Wolves were like a nine-win team and when he was on the court, they were like a 50-win team. 2005 rolls around, all of a sudden his on-off is like neutral because there's a ton of noise in those stats. And because maybe he was a little tired and because maybe there was some drama and maybe Latrell Sprewell not getting a new contract was a thing. And maybe Sam Cassell hurting his back and it's like he can't do the heavy lifting. And so then you're tempted to say, well, Garnett's done. And of course, years and years and years after that, going all the way out to 2012, 2013, when it was like an all-star in Boston, would would suggest otherwise. LeBron James in 2018 during the regular season when the Cavs finally look beatable in the East and Kyrie's gone and LeBron also had a neutral on-off. You're like, oh, that's, is that the end of LeBron's prime? That's it. And then he goes to Los Angeles and he hurts his groin and he misses time. That's it. LeBron's done. So those are just two examples. There's a ton more, but I think it's really important to remember like one thing happening once or something happening twice in basketball, even for a full season, is is relatively common, and it isn't dispositive. It isn't this definitive case closed, we're done. It's just another piece of information you have to figure out how to balance. So I, I agree with everything you said, but a couple things I do want to see from Trey Young. Like I said, rim frequency, super low. Second worst of his career. Three-point frequency, enormous drop-off. He's taking the least amount of three-pointers per 100 that he's he's taken, at least relative to the shots that he's taking. His, his long mid-range field goal percentage, super down, right? He's basically shifted all of his rim and three-point attempts and taking them more in the short mid-range and long mid-range, and he's just not making shots like he did last year or in, in years prior. Yeah, so I would say for me, I'm in a state of concern. Yeah. That, that's how I would describe this period. I have my eye on this. I'm in a state of concern. And, and we can close on this because I think it sort of connects back to this entire episode. Whether you're James Harden, Trey Young, um, Steph Curry, Chris Paul, it doesn't matter. When players next to you, Steve Nash, when players next to you have their numbers spike constantly when you're on the court in, in correlation with the team success, that's a thing that is a little bit more immune, I think, to variability. That's like, oh no, this dude makes life easier for everyone. When you don't see that, when that starts to go away, that might cause a little bit more immediate concern for me. So I'm thinking like, all right. For, also, I wasn't that high on DeJounte Murray anyway, so I, I'm, I'm not a huge like, why are the Hawks underperforming this year? I think the Hawks are, are right where, you know, they're, they're fine. They're fine. The Hawks are fine. Um, but, you know, Trey with DeJounte, the numbers aren't popping. Kevin Herter gets to go to Sacramento. He gets a little more opportunity. That's the thing that concerns me. That's the state of concern I'm in with Trey that I had my eye on more than just one bottom line number that might be influenced by variants or something like that. I really feel feel more comfortable with players where 
every time they're on the court, like the team is going up because everyone else's numbers are going up. And that's something I'll, I'll keep an eye on. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have our stats board that updates daily with players and teams, a ton of stats that we cite obviously throughout these podcasts. And that I use, uh, that we all use to, to make videos and additional content. We have our live Q and a coming up this Saturday, February 25th. That's a lot of fun in our discord community. If you sign up, uh, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you've had a great week recovering during the all-star break and that you are ready to, uh, rock and roll for the final stretch of the 2023 NBA regular season. Um, that's it. Thanks for listening all the way through and, uh, hope you're having a great day. (laughs) 